Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the EMILY Program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. We are delighted to welcome Heidi Anderson to the show today to talk about an essential topic, our relationships with our bodies. Heidi is a licensed clinical mental health counselor supervisor, a certified eating disorder specialist supervisor, a registered yoga teacher, and embodiment specialist. During her career, she has worked as a therapist in residential, EHP, IOP, and outpatient levels of care with people struggling with eating disorders. She currently maintains an outpatient group practice of body-centered psychotherapists specializing in weight-inclusive treatment for the intersection of trauma, attachment wounds, and eating disorders through an anti-oppression lens and somatic approach. Heidi is a member of the teaching faculty for the Embodied Recovery Institute, a three-phase training program for professionals working with clients with eating disorders. She was also the author of the Reclaiming Beauty Journal and Wisdom Deck, a resource created to support women and femme-identifying people in building a self-compassionate relationship with their body. You are just the person to chat with today, Heidi. We're so excited to have this conversation. Thank you for being here. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You are welcome. So let's dive in. So on this podcast and across the work we do at the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative, we talk a lot about making peace with our bodies. And we know that there's a lot that goes into that. There's certainly body image. That's really the thoughts and feelings we have about our bodies. And I think people often think of that first, but of course, a key part in our relationship with our bodies is the way we actually experience our bodies. And we know this topic of embodiment is one you're particularly passionate about. So let's start with thinking uh, some definitions first. So embodiment might sound like a bit of a heady word to those who are unfamiliar with it. How do you define embodiment? Yeah, so I think about embodiment as the way that we inhabit and experience our bodies as we move through the world. So rather than body image, where we're thinking about reflecting on the ways that we do that from the outside in, embodiment is really about learning to experience ourselves from the inside out and kind of experience life from that place rather than the, how am I being perceived as I'm doing this? And I like to think about that with embodiment, we can be both aware of and aware from. So for example, as if we're looking through the world through our eyes, we can be aware of the world through our eyes, but we can also be aware from the world from our eyes. So it's both what we're taking in, but also the body and the container that is experiencing it. I love that from within and and from the outside. That's a a much richer, deeper perspective than just the, how do I feel based on what I think I'm supposed to be concerned about in the world? So let's talk about some of the things that can inhibit or prevent embodiment? How do we, you know, where, how do we develop these patterns of disembodiment or disconnection? And how does that relate to eating disorders? Yeah, this is like one of my favorite topics. (laughs) Um, And I wanna say I'm very influenced by my study and my teaching role with the Embodied Recovery Institute for um, Eating Disorders. So just as a place to kind of recognize my teachers around this, this is, that's my frame of reference in this work. Yeah, so I think some things that might create 
challenges to be embodied are like any injuries or illnesses we might have, obviously trauma and experiences of perceiving that our life is a threat and how that impacts the ability to feel safe in our body, attachment wounds and any sort of perceived threat of rejection around our bodies is going to create that disconnect. Sensory integration and processing is a big piece that really only in the last few years I've started thinking about around how that impacts our ability to be embodied. Birth trauma and experiences from those very early moments of life, because being born is like the very first task of embodiment. So things that happen within there can really impact our embodiment. And obviously, a society that has prejudice and oppression, you know, we live in a society where we're still being told that one kind of body is preferred. And so as long as that's happening, as long as it feels dangerous to be in different sized bodies, that's going to impact our embodiment. And then really anything where we are learning to objectify ourselves. So, you know, bullying experiences, all the media messages, pornography, social media, and just the the act of always portraying your image rather than portraying like what's from the inside out. So a lot of those things. One other one is um, gender dysphoria. And if the way that you feel about your gender is not expressed in the way that your body is, that can also create challenges. So there's so many nuances of the things that take us out of embodiment. It's really all about safety. And if it feels safe to be in the body. So the way that it impacts eating disorders is that if there's not the ability to kind of be in a sense of safety in the body, you're gonna move into states of dysregulation and then the eating disorder behaviors can really come in to kind of help manage those states of dysregulation. That's, it's such a rich description you've given us. I think about the, the state of being, you know, we are, we are who we are. We are these beautiful creatures. And then the world comes in in so many ways and tells us, tries to tell us things and sets up barriers and judgment and unwelcome and unnecessary feedback and systems that, that oppress and systems that try to identify and classify and it's, it's a lot. It really is a lot. And I think your, your comments about that sort of safety perspective and how do those eating disorder behaviors sneak in to, to try to somehow ameliorate or bring some sense of safety. We often talk about the myth that people have that, you know, eating disorders are all about they're just a coping thing that people choose to, to do to cope and, and really losing the, the intricacy of, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I feel really disembodied. I think maybe I'll get an eating disorder or I feel really, I'm having a hard time coping. I think I'll get an eating disorder. It says no one. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> so I think your, your work is, is another voice to clarify that, that eating disorders are, are, you know, the, the behaviors that people do with an eating disorder can sometimes lead people to feel a false sense of security or safety and are so, in so many ways, like we've talked about, really influenced externally. So it is a, a complicated area, but 
not one that is impossible right. to improve, right. right? So for those who feel really disconnected from their bodies, where do you recommend people start to rebuild that connection? How do we begin to go about making that shift from intense self-criticism to, to self-compassion and worth? Yeah, well, I, I think it starts with safety. Like I said earlier, like even just listening to the eating disorder behaviors or listening to that intense body criticism and hearing the message that the client does not feel safe to be in their body is a great place to start and also a good place to give that framework to clients. For people who feel safer with some like context, <laughs> starting with psychoeducation around the nervous system is a really helpful way because it's helping clients to start to get kind of curious about what body sensations might be telling them about where they are in their nervous system. So for folks who like to start with the mental, that's a nice place to go. I think just this idea of titration is important. You know, finding places like starting maybe with sensation and getting curious about a sensation that might feel pleasurable somewhere, <laughs> or at least is there a place where you feel a sensation that feels neutral and starting there so that there's some anchor places for folks. My, my mentor, Rachel, talks a lot about like this idea of body phobia and that really the phobia is just telling us that the client doesn't feel safe to drop into their, their body. And so we want to kind of look at what are the factors like we spoke before that are impacting that. I think it's important to go really gently and bring curiosity into the process with folks. And that's where like our embodiment as, as, as therapists, it's important that, that we have a relationship with the ability of being present in our bodies, because that's kind of start to communicate that, like, I'm safe here in my body, let's co-regulate together, this is something that's possible, so that's another important piece. And then I think somatic resourcing is a really nice place to start, because it starts to introduce to clients what if it's possible to use the body and your senses as a way to regulate? And if you start to get curious about that, like this sensation is, say my heart is racing. And instead of being like, I hate myself for that, it's like, oh, there's my heart racing. Is there some sort of way that I can engage my senses to help shift down into a more calm and safe place? It starts to introduce this different way of relating to yourself that's not just being at war with your body, but really befriending it through its language, which is the senses, sensory system. Oh, I, there, there's a couple of things I just wanna go back to and what you just said, it was so beautiful that you know, embodiment is, is like recovery, is a process yes. and a practice. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a process and a practice that we as professionals are working with clients on their process because we are all, humans in this society. And we also have these messages and challenges and experiences. And so I love what you said about that co-regulation. We know that that can be very helpful in an intervention. And if you have some disturbance in that, your own experience of embodiment, it's hard to co-regulate <laughs> with the client, right? It's hard to, to be a contributor to that. So I, I, I want to talk a little bit about that. And then I also really want to echo the, the 
sensory piece, I think that's that's sort of a particular area of fascination for me that that we're I think increasingly paying attention to in eating disorders yes. and the, the concept that perhaps the neurobiology that that really does set some of us up to have a higher risk for an eating disorder and have a higher genetic predisposition for it. At least part of that has to do with how we experience sensation. So I, I think that really is a fascinating piece about it. So, so let's go go back to the, if you if you will think with us a little bit about as a as a clinician as a practitioner, what are some of the practices or the challenges you hear? from practitioners, things that, that practitioners do to help progress their embodiment and some of the things that come up for, for providers before then we get to what do you hear about challenges from clients? So let's talk about providers first. Yeah, well, I think for providers, a lot, a lot of the training that we get in working with eating disorders is really that top-down training. And, and that is very important and necessary. And we can sort of end up perpetuating this, like I'm not in my body and I'm here to help you with eating disorder recovery. Like I think ultimately Rachel talks about recovery equals greater embodiment and that the more we're embodied, the more we have access to recovery. And so as a provider, if you have had a lot of training from the top down, you can talk that language really well, but you might not be aware of how your nervous system and your embodiment is impacting the relationship. And so having practices where, you know, getting, getting grounded, you have skills for getting grounded, you have skills for resourcing yourself in the room with clients, you have skills for tracking your own nervous system. If something that happens in the room and you are like, oh, I feel kind of triggered by that statement, you can, oh, okay, here's a somatic resource in this moment. Like for me, I have I have hot tea, I have a foot roller, I have a weighted blanket and I have things that I grasp. My, my clients see me resourcing myself in relationship with them as an invitation that they can also do a, same, a similar thing. And I, I identify as a highly sensitive person that, and I see that as a neurodivergent. So I'll openly talk about that and how I'm working with that in order to really be present with them as a modeling. And then, I mean, just the embodiment practices for me of, what do I need to do to release the things that come up in sessions, right? So having my own movement practice, which might involve dancing for five minutes on my lunch break, because that's all I can do, or laying down and like saying the world supports me as I'm helping others, right? So having these practices so that we are staying in our bodies and not just kind of pushing through in a dissociated place or a disembodied place, I should say, with our clients. Those are, those are beautiful. It does speak to you how the intensity of the work that, that providers experience when we're helping others, that we have to make sure that we are also resourcing ourselves and reaching out to do that. But I think you're right. I think so. Uh, I think many people have that experience of being a highly sensitive person or having a highly tuned nervous system and having that feeling that doesn't quite make sense of, gosh, you know, when on, on Wednesdays, I feel sort of anxious. I wonder why that is. Well, perhaps it's something to do with the, the degree to which your caseload is higher on Wednesdays and then specific experiences you're having with clients on Wednesdays that really lead you to need some extra self-regulation skills so that you can be 
the best compassionate helper you can be in that moment, I think is, is sometimes confusing, particularly to, to either newer providers or providers that end up in those times when they feel burnout or they feel sort of exhaustion, that it's often, how do we, how do we help ourselves? How, what do we need to do to regulate ourselves so that we can be more effective? Yes. And because the bodies in the room are such an important part of the therapy, right? And we live in a body that might have a certain shape or size or gender or race, and our clients live in ones that are similar or different. And then how we kind of work with that piece too. For example, you know, I, I identify as small fat. And when I first started working in this field, I remember working with the folks that were in lower weight bodies and just, just kind of having my, my nervous system was just like, oh, in response to this, I'm going to own that this is a safe thing to be. And I'm going to eat all the hamburgers I can eat. And I'm going to have five pieces of cake in front of them. I'm going to be so enthusiastic about it. I'm going to wear my bikini on the beach. Like, just like, this is fine. Right. So, so all of that activation was in the room with my clients and I really had to learn how to, you know, work with my somatic nervous system so that I could be in a really safe and present place and hold space for them rather than have all my own, you know, body countertransference because it's happening in there for, for our clients and for us, no matter what the differences are. So I think that's another piece of this too. Absolutely. I, I totally relate to so much of what you've said. I think many providers very likely as we're, we're realizing more as providers, back to what you said earlier that we, you know, sort of top-down learning we do is so important and is probably not the full picture of what we really need in terms of our own learning. And so it does evolve as you learn more about that and experience in the, in the room with yes. people. Let's, let's switch to, to clients and people that are struggling or working towards uh, working with their embodiment. What are some of the common challenges you, you see or hear in doing embodiment work with clients? How do they experience that? Yeah, I, I think I mentioned that kind of this body phobia piece at first. And so for someone who's just like, I will not be in my body, um, starting with teaching about the nervous system, teaching about sensations, teaching about the language of sensations, just starting to build curiosity is, is kind of the place to start. A lot of clients that I have worked with, once they do come into their body, that like their fear is they're going to be emotionally flooded by what they encounter there because they've been so cut off as a protective mechanism for the body, what, whatever the body is holding. And so I think just being very, very gentle, very slow, very compassionate, honoring the protective parts like the eating disorder, it might be a protective part around what's going to come up if I start to turn and, and look at my body. So really being like honoring of the protective system of clients and not just being like, we're going to go and go right to the body and get everything right there. So that emotional flooding is something that comes up that clients fear that, and then it does happen. And so having um, ways to slow down the process, bring some supportive containment to the process, all of these things can be really helpful for, for that piece because the body story is holding some of the most intense parts of why a person might be using an eating disorder. And that has to be really, I think, held sacred and honored as we approach the body. Yeah. And I, 
I know that, uh, you know, at the Emily program and at Veritas Collaborative, we use a lot of yoga and expressive arts. And I know that you think a lot about that as well. It's, talk a little bit about how those types of, of activities and interventions can help support clients in really partnering with their body, really brings them into contact in a way with the body very directly. Talk about how you, we think about that as partnering with the body and, and using those as resources. Well, so, so yoga is a big part of my own embodiment story and I love bringing that in with clients. I think as I've learned more about the different sensory systems, you know, not just the far senses, but also our near senses of interoception, like the ability to track our internal sensations, proprioception, the ability to kind of know where we are in space and vestibular, which is like our balance and where our head is in space. Yoga is actually a practice that is giving ourselves a lot of proprioceptive feedback of like, where am I in space, which can help to really organize the system internally. And it also is a practice that helps train this process of interoceptive awareness, which is just being able to say, you know, with curiosity rather than judgment, what is happening inside? What's the sensation? But what, if I listen to that sensation rather than avoid it, what might it be telling me about you know, what I need in this moment to access safety? So I think yoga is it's, it's so fun to watch like the language and the science catch up with like the felt sense of the experience when you practice yoga. One of the things that I think happens when you practice yoga is like, as you're giving your sense, sensory system all of this input from the different positions and the breath practices, you really start to kind of have a clearer sense of where your edges are, like where your body stops and where the world starts. It kind of creates a, that sense of boundary that then can really help settle the nervous system. So I think as a, as a therapist, you can kind of start to play with bringing some of these things into the, into the room. And, and like with yoga and breathing, there's some breath practices that will help down-regulate the nervous system. There's some breath practices that will up-regulate the nervous system. There's breath practices that are just going to tone um, the vagus nerve and bring a lot of, you know, calm to the system through that. So it's just been cool, I think, as a, both a therapist and someone who loves yoga to watch all of this intersect. And it's, such a lovely invitation for clients to to start to get curious about what their body wants to say to them. Yeah, so that's yoga. <laughs> <laughs> that's and I love what the the curiosity rather than judgment concept of it, which is really can be extended to so many areas. That's that's incredible. So, it's, how about other expressive arts? Other things that that you utilize? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so with other expressive arts, I think it's just a, a chance, again, to be not in your language mind, but be in, in their expressive arts are embodied movement, art, music, involving yourself in all of these things involves coming into the body. And so it can be like a gentle invitation because you're not necessarily saying to the client, you know, what's happening in your, in your belly, but you're you're, maybe if you put some art down, then they actually have to be embodied in order to start engaging with the art. And so it's a way to kind of see another, another access point for embodiment. 
And that often will require, again, that curiosity, not judgment, particularly when it comes into art, there's always the, or frequently the automatic, like, oh, I'm not an artist, but it's really about curiosity, yeah. right? And I think for a lot of folks who are, who struggle with eating disorders, right, that, that self-critical voice about either expressive arts or yoga or their body in general, it's really an internalized perpetrator that has been sort of brought in from the system from living in such an objectifying world. And so even that the inner critic that might come up around in, in engaging in these things is an opportunity to say, oh, isn't that interesting? Where did you get this message to be, to see yourself as such an object? And how can we start to, you know, chip away at that a little bit? Yeah. And how can we, how can we work with that sense of, of for so many people that sort of highly noticing sense of, of viewing that self-criticism plus sort of high noticing leads to more self-criticism. How can we turn that high noticing, which is just part of how pe some people are wired into sort of deploying it for the good and not for the, the judgment. How can you be curious and less judgmental? That's, that's an ongoing challenge, but we know that you created a, a really cool tool to support this work, your, the Reclaiming Beauty Journal and Wisdom deck that we mentioned in your bio. So tell us about that resource, its value, how your, how your thoughts have evolved about it since it was created. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So I have an interesting relationship with my, I call it my second child. <laughs> I had a human child and then I had a book child. And yeah, so that, I released that into the world, I think about six or seven years ago, you know, we have lived through a lot of shifts and changes as a culture. And I, I really still think it's a beautiful tool for, you know, there's, there's different images. And I think that imagery can be like, um, like a trailhead in the brain. Like if that neural pathway around self-criticism is so thick and laid down we need like a cue that's like hey try a different neural pathway over here <laughs> so I think the cards and the images is that like trailhead that says hey what about thinking about this in a different way and then the images have a little bit of writing about them and then a few prompts a lot of movement yoga expressive arts prompts for exploring the images and I collaborated with a friend of mine named Leah Joy, who's an artist, and she did, she did a very beautiful job. It was a lot of fun to do. I think it has, a, my, my thoughts about it have evolved, because as I look back over it, I, I really feel like, you know, I had been in the eating disorder field for about 10 years. I, would, I used both my lived experience and my experience working with clients, and I think it was still very, you know, created from my own identities, right? So, you know, a cis, white, at the time I was in a straight sized body. So it was very much from that perspective, even though I was trying to bring in other things. I think I've just listened more and understand more about all different identities. I really value in my practice having a lot of diversity now. And there's not as many cues for safety for people of different identities. You know, there's not as many people of color. There, I would like, what if Shia had had more gender fluidity, those kind of things. So, and I don't talk about embodiment as much as I'm talking about now, like the, the language for all of that, which was my felt sense of my work just hadn't been integrated yet. So I think it's a beautiful 
thing to play with and that you can do like three card readings with yourself you can like ask a question how might i move towards safer embodiment today and do like a readings and play with it it's a real intuitive way to access your own wisdom around this process that's awesome it, it sounds like you've done a lot of learning and, and thinking as you've progressed in your career, as you've progressed in your personal experience. How, two questions, sort of how has really learning to embody your own body impacted your life personally? And then the second part is how have you seen your, your skills as a, as a helper evolve as you've had that evolution in your own experience yeah well in my own in my own life I think you know I had a I had I wasn't thin but I was strong and athletic and you know a, a very acceptable to the cultural norms kind of body until I was about 30 and so I had some privilege there and then my body had kind of a big change when that year due to some health reasons and kind of threw me on this process of getting curious about body image and embodiment. And, you know, yoga has been something I've practiced, I think over 20 years now. And my experience of yoga is that at that time of my life is that I would kind of be having like a bad body image day where I felt like Ugh, uncomfortable in my skin or something was just not okay. And then I would go to yoga and, you know, experience all of the proprioception and interoception and breathing and and shifting my nervous system, you know, down into that safe and connected place and just really leave like feeling totally different. And I really, I left really from that place of, instead of thinking about how does everybody see me, I was thinking, wow, I feel good. And I was living from that. And so that experience, I just kept going back and back and back because why would you not want to feel that all the time? <laughs> so, so yoga kind of was the, the first thing. And then just, I do lots of different movement stuff. I think it's fun. And I think the way that it's evolved is, you know, body shift and change. That's an inevitable part of this process, which is part of something I think we need to support people in recovery is that that's a very normal part of the recovery process. And so learning to kind of be in this compassionate place with what's happening that makes a body shift and change. Like for me in my personal journey, it's been a lot of, um, you know, I've had, I've had several, several medical health issues. I had hysterectomy last year, like that's created a big body shift and change, right? But all of that has really helped me as a therapist to just be compassionate with folks around these things that do impact our ability to feel safe in our bodies. I think that that's how I would answer that question. Yeah, that's beautiful. It does really speak to that ongoing learning as we learn and grow and age and change and life happens. We evolve our thinking and our experience and our skill development. And it is, a, I, I totally echo personally your experience of, the, of, of how amazing a yoga kind of intervention can be that stepping on that mat really is sort of a portal into a different yeah. world that can bring you out into the same old world and a new perspective. So I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I think another way that my thinking and understanding about this work has evolved is that embodiment is definitely a key in recovery, but it is not as accessible to everybody. People that inhabit marginalized identity, it is less safe to be embodied. And I think that's an important thing as a provider to understand is that embodiment can feel like something that's like 
white straight sized people get to enjoy that marginalized identities can't necessarily enjoy. And in that case, I'm not going to try to convince my client that it's going to be safe to be in their body because of what they're experiencing related to their you know, marginalized identity. And so in that case, I think the place to really work is building resiliency to living in this you know, toxic, oppressive societies and you know, building a sense of confidence in themselves. Those feel important in this work too. And I think that's a way that my thinking has involved. I think I, you know, when I was younger in my career, I was like, oh, we just got to be embodied and everything is going to heal. And then, and then I've just been listening and understanding that embodiment and safety in your body is a, is a privilege. Yeah. yeah, I think that's an excellent point. You know, the concept of embodiment for all sounds like a great idea and not possible right now. And I think about, you know, how does that challenge us to help society change? How can we each in our small ways contribute to change and, and support and allyship and really doing what we can to change in our own ways, which, you know, all of those little changes will build a different world. How do we do that? It's really critical to name that. I appreciate, appreciate that very much. Anything else you would add in terms of, you know, if you wish people knew, knew one thing or took could take one step towards embodiment, thinking about that resiliency piece, that taking that step for you to develop your resiliency, even in the face of this, of all of these social pressures, any words of wisdom you'd share? Well, it's hard to, it's hard to come up with my own wisdom about this because I have some like things in my mind from, you know, for example, Sonia Renee Taylor and the idea that the, we have this idea of hierarchies in our bodies and it's sort of this ladder of who has more privilege and who has less. And, and what if, you know, the system is actually the ladder and we just move away from that, right? Like, so I don't know if I have any strong wisdom from my own experience, but thinking about those words from her feel like a really important piece is this idea of her, her idea of radical self-love and, and meeting ourselves with that energy and working towards that. I just really love that so much. I just, I'm going to repeat it again and give her credit. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we support that fully as well. Yeah. <laughs> where, so Heidi, where can people learn more about you and the work that you're doing? I have a website. It's reclaimingbeauty.com. And that is where you can find out me. I have different, different blog posts and writings and offerings. I will say that, you know, when I started my business, someone said to me, Heidi, that's a terrible, that's a terrible business name because beauty is going to trigger everybody. <laughs> They're not going to understand what you're coming from. And I said, yeah, that's actually exactly why I want to call it reclaiming beauty. Because to me, beauty is about shifting from like this external cultural dictated ideas about what is beauty to like inhabiting and coming into contact with the beauty of our authentic self, and then living in the world from that place. And so I'm I'm proud of that business name now, even though people are often like, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> well, it certainly is thought-provoking and conversation-provoking. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic <laughs> for furthering the conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah. This has been fantastic. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. I really have enjoyed the conversation. Excellent. If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.